the trial of Derek Chauvin ends with the verdict declaring guilty on all charges, the Supreme Court enters into a tumultuous time period, and Senate negotiations regarding President Biden's infrastructure plan improve. I'm Eli Kelson. This is the Teenager's Guide to Politics. Alrighty, so I'm going to begin today with going over the entire story arc of the Derek Chauvin trial and to kind of look back on it and reflect on why the outcome came as it is. And I'm not going to argue whether or not it was the right verdict or the wrong verdict. I'm just going to be looking at the events that led up to the point and then kind of give a closing, necessarily argument, but kind of a summary of possibly why. It was reached that way. So, formerly known as the State of Minnesota versus Derek Chauvin, is a was a criminal case in the District Court of Minnesota, in which Derek Chauvin, who was a former Minneapolis police officer, was tried and convicted of murder of George Floyd during an arrest on May twenty fifth, twenty twenty. Chauvin was charged with second degree unintentional murder third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. The first charge carries a maximum penalty of 40 years in prison, and just this past week, on the 20th, the jury found Chauvin guilty on all three charges. And so, let's rewind the clock a bit. And so, the trial began on March 8, 2021, at the Hepton County Government Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was the first of two scheduled criminal trials stemming from uh, from Floyd's death. It was also the first criminal trial in Minnesota to be entirely televised and the first in the state court to be broadcast live. The trial received extensive media coverage with over 23 million people watching the verdict being announced on live television. And so let's look at the background. So Derek Chauvin was one of the four officers in the Minneapolis Police Department involved in the arrest of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, on suspicion of using a counterfeit $20 bill at a market. He also served as the field training officer for one of the other officers involved. While Floyd was handcuffed and lying down face down, Chauvin um, used restraining methods which were later deemed not excessive, were deemed excessive force, excuse me, for approximately nine and a half minutes. Um, while Chauvin was using this excessive force, the two or three other officers did not respond to to Floyd's cry for help. So a reading of the initial report shows no mention of Floyd's treatment when he was arrested. So the report reads a medical incident during police interactions. This was the initial that was released. And many believe Chauvin would never have been convicted if the mobile phone video taken by one of the witnesses had not surfaced. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz publicly thanked Fraser, saying, Taking that video, I think many folks know, is maybe the only reason that Derek Chauvin will go to prison. Two autopsies found Floyd's death to be a homicide. At the time of his death, Floyd had been recovered from COVID-19 and suffered from heart disease and had fentanyl and methanine in his systems, which was three times the normal dosage. Chauvin was arrested on May 29th, 2020, initially charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, making him the first white American police officer in Minnesota to be charged in the death of an African-American civilian. On June 3rd, charges were amended to include second-degree murder, um, specifically unintentional second-degree murder while attempting to commit felony assault, 
Um, Chauvin was released on conditional bail on October 7th, 2020, after posting a bond of $1 million. Uh, court documentation provided that his release was supervised and would be forfeited if he declined to appear before the magistrate refused to appear in court or scheduled dates, left the state of Minnesota without court appeal, or had contact with Floyd's family. So let's read the official legal documentation of each individual charge. So let's begin with the murder in the second degree unintentional. So according to section 609.19, murder in the second degree, subdivision one, unintentional murder or drive-by shootings. Who, and here it reads, whoever does either of the following is guilty of murder in the second degree and may be sentenced to the imprisonment for no more than 40 years. One, causes the death of a human being with intent to affect the death of that person or another, but without premediation. Two, causes the death of a human while committing or attempting to commit a drive-by shooting in violation of section 609.66 subdivision 1E under circumstances other than those described in section 609.185 paragraph A clause 3. And then here's the subdivision two, unintentional murders. Whoever, and the same, whoever does either of the following is guilty of unintentional murder in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for more for no more than 40 years. Number one, causes the number of causes the death of a human being without intent to affect the, the death of any person while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense other than criminal sexual conduct in the first or second degree with force or violation or drive-by shooting or, number two, causes the death of a human without intent to affect the death of any person while, in, uh, while intentionally inflicting or attempting to inflict bodily harm upon the victim when the perpetrator is restrained under an order for protection and the victim is a person designated to receive protection under the order. As used in this clause, quote, order of protection, end quote, includes an order of protection issued under chapter 15. 518b a harassment restraining order issued during section 609.748 a court ordering order setting conditions of pre-trial release or conditions of criminal sentence or juvenile court disposition a restraining order issued in a marital dissolution action and any other order issued by a court of another state or of the united states that is similar to any of these orders and so what we see here is that what I'm speculating here is that the prosecution was able to convince the jury that under the subsection or subdivision two, subsection two in, of the cause of death of a human without intent to affect the death of any person while intentionally inflicting or attempting to inflict bodily harm upon the victim. So that is, I think, where the jury was able to kind of be influenced by the prosecution by their attempts of saying that Derek Chauvin was intentionally inflicting or attempting to inflict bodily harm upon um, George Floyd. So let's go back. Let's read the other two. So for the murder in the third degree, subsection A, whoever without intent to affect the death of any person causes the death of another by perpetrating an act immediately dangerous to others and even seeing a depraved mind without regard of, for human life is guilty of murder in third degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for more, no more than 25 years. Subsection B, whosoever without intent to cause death Proximately causes the death of a human being by directly or indirectly unlawfully selling, giving away, bartering, delivery, exchanging, distributing, or administering a controlled substance classified in Schedule 1 or 2 is guilty of murder in the third degree or may be sentenced to imprisonment for no more than 25 years or to a payment of a fine of no more than $40,000 or both. And 
This section is a little bit more interesting because I think, personally, this is my opinion. I'm going to let that know. know I don't think the second degree unintentional murder should have been admitted into the case. And it wasn't originally, but the judge allowed it. So that is the circumstances that we're dealing with. But this is a much more case that you're able to make for the, based on the prosecution's perspective because both of these subdivisions... Both A and B states that whosoever without intent to affect the death of any person, that you're able to craft, now you're able to craft an argument and evidence around that premise, which creates an easier time for the prosecution to be able to get the jury to agree with the verdict. So the last one is the manslaughter in the second degree. So a person whose death of another by any of the following means is guilty of manslaughter in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for no more than 10 years or to pay a fine of no more than $20,000 or both. Number one, by the person's culpable negligence wherefore the person creates an unreasonable risk and coincidentally takes chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another or by shooting another with a firearm or other dangerous weapons as a result of negligence or believing that the other to be a deer or to be the animal or other animal. Three, by setting a spring spring gun or pitfall, deadfall, snare, or other like dangerous weapons or device, or by forgetting or unintentionally permitting any animal known by the person of vicious predations or to have caused great or substantial bodily harm in the past to run off uncontrolled off the owner's presence or negligently failing to keep it pro properly confined, or Five, by committing or attempting a, to commit a f violation of section 609.378, neglect or endangerment of a child and murder in the first, second, or third degree is not committed thereby. If proven by a predominance of the evidence, it is shown by an affirmative defense to criminal liability under clause four that the victim provoked the animal to cause the victim's death. So in this one, we are looking at subsection one where it states that the, by the person's culpable negligence whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk so this is where the prosecution would have translated the argument into being that Dirk Chauvin created an unreasonable risk by having George Floyd restrained in the prone position and constantly taking chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another by restraining him in, an, in a manner that was deemed excessive alrighty so with that kind of knowledge that we have now, we know that the charges that Chauvin was on was a fairly reasonable one, except of the, the two of the three were fairly reasonable. The other ones, the final, the second degree murder with unintentional had some flaws, I would say, to the argument. So on August 29th, Chauvin's attorney filed a motion to dismiss the case, claiming that Floyd most likely died as a result of drug use and pre-existing medical conditions. On the same day, prosecutors moved to increase potential sentences for the four officers beyond the guidance of all four accused, argued that Floyd was vulnerable while being held down on the ground in handcuffs and was treated cruelly. On November 12, 2020, Judge Cahill initially ruled that Chauvin and the other three officers would be tried together. On July, January 11th, excuse me, 2021, Cahill reversed this ruling such that this case only involves the trial of Chauvin separate from the other officers. On October 20, October 22nd, 2020, Cahill dismissed the third degree murder charge, but not the second degree unintentional murder charge and second degree manslaughter charges. On March 11th, 2021, on appeal, Cahill reinstated the third degree murder charge against Chauvin. The decision came after the Minnesota Supreme Court on March 10th denied the defense's petition for review of a court of appeals decision requiring Cahill to reconsider reinstating the charge. 
And then on March 19th, 2021, after considering the drugs discovered in the SUV where Floyd was detained were confirmed to contain his DNA, Cahill allowed the defense to present limited evidence from Floyd's May 2019 arrest when he resisted officers and swallowed drugs leading to dangerously high blood pressure, disallowed a forensic psychiatrist the prosecution wanted to def- testify that Floyd was acting like a normal scared person during the arrest, and dismissed a motion to postpone the trial in light of the civil um, settlement's publicity in a sense. So, yes, so... We're going to also look at the jury that was selected and the judge and attorneys that were involved in the case because that's a very important aspect to be able to look at while we're analyzing the case. So, Hepton County Judge Peter Cahill is presiding over the case. Cahill has been a judge since 2007 and previously worked as a public defender and prosecutor. And on May 31st, 2020, Governor Tim Walz announced that Attorney General Keith Ellison would lead the prosecution instead of County Attorney Michael O. Freeman. Freeman was the subject of protests and was later disqualified from working on the case. The prosecution team also included Matthew Frank, Jerry Blackwell, Stephen Schleitzer, and Aaron Eldridge. Ellison brought in a team of attorneys from Hogan Lovills and Neil Cowley, offered it to assist in crafting strategy and motions. Catahall said that the Ellison invited the mother of Eric Gar- of Garrett Garner to the prosecution daily meeting, and her presence highlighted how the Chauvin case was like an effort to, ach- quote, achieve a measure of justice for all the black families who have lost loved ones to, uh, to police violence but never sought a courtroom, end quote. And I understand the notion of that statement. However, I think it's dangerous also at the same time level and I don't want this to be taken out of context so having each individual case of police brutality should be treated in the effective manner in which it should and should be prosecuted to the highest extent of the law and justice should be served but in the case of Derek Chauvin it's not very fair in a sense to be tried as they suggest for the measure of justice for all black families who have lost loved ones to police violence but never saw a courtroom because Derek Chauvin wasn't responsible for all the other African-Americans who died at the hands of a police officer. And this created a very mob-like mentality, I would say, is that they saw that Derek Chauvin as a vestige of the, of the American police force and that he represented all police officers that work throughout this country tirelessly to protect and to serve their communities around them. And so I think this pro- prosecution was more of a referendum on American police, and, and I believe that influenced the jur- jury as well, because the jury, while they remained anonymous, it was the most political and highly covered event of last year besides COVID-19, I would say. And so the instant that they saw the video, they already formulated their own opinions based upon that. So the jury was definitely unbiased. You're never going to have a completely unbiased jury, despite filtering and cross-examination from prosecutors and defendants. So... The, that quote is definitely an interesting one to take into context, so that was just a little thought of mine. And Chauvin is represented by defense attorney Eric Nelson. And so on December 22nd, 2020, prosecutive jurors in Hebden County were mailed a questionnaire asking about their views on the criminal justice system, the police, and the social movements. The questionnaire also asked prospective jurors to locate how many times they viewed videos of Floyd's death and where they participated in the Floyd, George Floyd protests. On March 8, 2021, jury selection was delayed until at least March 19th, pending consideration of the third-degree murder charge against Chauvin. 
Um, jury selection began on that day with the third-degree murder issue still unresolved by the Court of Appeals. During jury selection, prospective jurors were were asked questions about their views on Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, and defending, defending the police. Jurors were also questioned about Minneapolis, Minneapolis's $27 million settlement with the Floyd, Floyd family, with two seated juries excused after news of the settlement changed their ability to be impartial. Some potential juries expressed fear of retribution if they were to return on an unpopular verdict. Twelve anonymous jurors and three alternatives were seated as of March 23rd, with six white, four black, and two multicultural jurors selected. And on the third day of trial, a juror had a stress-related reaction but declined medical attention. So, there. if you go on to the Wikipedia page, you'll see the prosecution witnesses and testimonies. About 400 people were included on a list of prospective trial witnesses, but only 38 were called to testify. The prosecution witnesses were, and it gives a multitude of them. I'm not going to list all of them. If you would like to witness uh, witness and read it, then I would recommend the Wikipedia page, State v. Chauvin. Uh, to be able to kind of dive deep into this further, I just don't want to go over the time to include everything in here. And so let's look kind of at the substance of the case. So it said body camera footage from the four officers included involved were entered into evidence and shown the trial. Shortly after Floyd was taken away in an ambulance, Chauvin's body camera shows him responding to a bystander who took issue with his kneeling on his neck. Chauvin responded to the bystander saying, that's one person's opinion. We had to control this guy because he's a sizable guy. It looks like he's probably on something. Prosecutors also showed surveillance footage of Floyd at um, Cup's food before his death. In a rebuttal to the defense's case on April 15th, the prosecutor called on Martin Tobin to testify again. Tobin, an expert in respiratory failure, disagreed with the defense's witnesses Fowler's con, um, context on that carbon monoxide poisoning from the squad car may have played a role in Floyd's death. Tobin testified that the autopsy, the autopsy results showed Floyd's blood had an oxygen saturation level of 98, meaning that, quote, all there was for anything else was 2%, and normally humans have a blood level of 0 to 3% carbon monoxide at any given time. And so I'm just going to go now to the verdict and sentencing because I have other things to get to, but the jury, the jury deliberation began on April 19th, 2021, following closing arguments. And on April 28th, the jury announced it had reached a verdict after 10 hours of deliberation. And you know in a courtroom that the juries already had came to a decision or verdict before that the 10 hours of deliberation was acting because they didn't want to be appeared that they simply, this was more of just a political case where they only took literally 30 minutes or maybe a couple hours to, to discuss. So that they said 10 hours, but I would speculate that I was much lower on the spectrums. And Chauvin was found guilty on all three accounts, according to Nielsen ratings. Approximately 18 million viewers across six nights watched the live reading of the verdict. After the verdict was read, Chauvin's bail was revoked and he was remanded into custody by the Hepting County Sheriff's Office, which transferred Chauvin to the Minnesota Department of Corrections. Chauvin was then booked into the Oak Park Heights Maximum Security State Prison and held in solitary confinement for 43 hours a day, 23 hours a day. Excuse me. 
Shelvin faces a maximum of four years in prison, but Minnesota sentencing guidelines suggest a sentence of 12.5 years as Shelvin is a first-time offender with no prior criminal history. The state has indicated that it will request a longer sentence than the guidelines recommend due to uh, aggravating factors. The sentence hearing will take place eight weeks after the date of the verdict, which would be on June 15th, 2021. Alrighty, so let's get into what the Supreme Court has coming up for itself. So we know that we are entering the spring, well, we're entering into the spring transition into summer, and this is usually time, this is the, usually the busy season where um, drafts fly in between chambers and the justices seek to release all remaining opinions. And the term like the second half of last term has been groundbreaking instead of appearing in their kind of symbolic chamber participating in free will and giving and taking with uh, with arguing consoles. Dishes have convened on by phone or by telemarketing, not telemarketing, by Zoom or other platforms with less that have prompted more stilt and less spontaneous arguments. But the term has been most impacted by the death of Ginsburg last September, a personal blow to m- many of the justices who served with her during part of her nearly 30-year tenure. Each time a new member takes the bench, it changes the court, and now the justices, the justices are adjusting to their newest colleague, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, especially as they finish up the most controversial cases. Eyes are on any retirement plans for Justice Stephen Bauer, 82, whose departure will allow President Joe Biden and Senate Democrats to replace him with a much younger liberal. Here is what the court is coming up with. So oral arguments are upcoming. So on Monday, the justice will hear a challenge brought by conservative nonprofit Americans for prosperity and the Thomas More Law Center to a California law that requires charitable organizations that solicit donations to disclose a list of their contributions to the state attorney general. The group says they want to keep their donors secret and that the state has not shown a compelling reason for the law. They argue that the law will chill contributors from um, coming forward for fear of harassment and violation of the First Amendment. Although the information is supposed to be confidential, the group says that the state may make uh, have affidavit disclosures in response. Um, California argues that the group already have to file the same data with the IRS and the state needs to the information as it tries to combat fraud related to charities. Three other states, New York, New Jersey, and Hawaii, have similar laws. And this case is being closely watched by those who fear it would lead to more anonymous and dark money flowing into the system. Quote, the nonprofits are asking the Supreme Court to make it harder for the government to require the, dis- the disclosure of donor information, said Lloyd Hitzelmeyer, an expert on, co- on campaign finance at Notre Dame Law School. Quote, while the case is about a state attorney general asking for this information, if the Supreme Court raised the bar here, that would likely also apply to election donor, disloca- uh, election donor disclosure laws down the road. And another case is the cheerleader and ca- off-campus speech. So on Wednesday, the court will hear a First Amendment case concerning the authority of public school officials to discipline students for what they say outside of school. A junior varsity cheerleader identified in court papers as BL, who didn't make the varsity squad, lashed out on social media while she was off off campus writing F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. The words were accompanied by a picture of her giving a 
middle digit salute. After the outburst, the girl was suspended from the squad as a violated team and school rules. Lawyers for the girl sued, alleging the school had violated her freedom of speech. The girl won in lower courts that held the school could not remove her off school, off campus speech. According to the Court of Appeals, she did not waive her First Amendment rights as a condition of joining the team. And back in 1969, the Supreme Court held that public school officials could regulate speech that would uh, that would materially and substantially interfere with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the school on the operation of the school, but that decisions concerning speech at that 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 decision concerned speech at school the biden administration has weighed in on a factor of the school arguing that there is some speech that intentionally targets specific school functions that warrant discipline even if it offers occurs off campus quote empowering school officials to censor what students say when they're outside of school would be an epic restrictions of people's freedom of expression said Woodrow Wallach of the ACLU, who is defending the student, quote, it would impact, would impact not only business, a harmless outburst like BLs, but would threaten young people's right to speak about important political, religious, and cultural matters, which is exceedingly the wrong lesson to teach young people. Another case is that the Religious Liberty and a Philadelphia Foster Agency, so an issue is a major dispute against pinning the claims of religious liberties, against the LGBTQ community. It comes as the new conservative majority has moved aggressively to protect the rights under the free extras clause of the constitution. In the new case heard in, no- in early November, Philadelphia froze the contract of a Catholic foster agency because the agency refused to work with same-sex couples as potential foster parents. The agency, Catholic Social Services, sued under the First Amendment. Um, Philadelphia defended its actions, saying the agency violated anti-discrimination laws that are neutral and applicable to everyone. Supporters of LGBTQ rights support the city, arguing it was within its right to freeze the contract to an organization re- receiving taxpayer funds and turning away same-sex couples. They fear that a decision in favor of CSS would clear the way for religious organizations to get exempt from non-discrimination laws in other contexts. Supporters of expanding religious Liberty rights hoped the court's conservative majority expanding upon a term from last term will continue to hold the government to a higher standard when it comes to regulation that impact religious believers. And the probably the most consequential one is going to be the Arizona voting rights law. So the Supreme Court is considering two provisions of Arizona law that the Democratic National Committee says violate the historic voting Rights Act that prohibit laws that result in racial discrimination. One part of the state law requires that in-person election day voters cast their ballots in their assigned precinct. Another provision says that only certain persons, family caregivers, mail mail carriers, and election officials may deliver another person's ballot, um, another person's completed ballot to the polling station. Eight years ago, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the 5-4 majority opinion in Shelby County v. Holder, effectively gutting Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act a provision that requires states with a history of discrimination to attain the permission of the federal government or the courts before enacting new laws related to voting. And since the decision, challengers to voting restrictions have increasingly turned to Section 2 of the law that holds that no voting regulations can be imposed that result in a denial or abridgment of the rights of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of color or, or race. Democrats fear the new conservative majority on the court will now weaken Section 2. The case comes as state legislators, Republican state legislators across the country are also moving at a fast clip to pass laws to restrict voting access. So, that is our first little bit 
there. But I also wanted to say something. The notion that Republican state legislatures across the country are moving at a fast clip to pass laws to restrict voting access is a bit of a flawed argument in its very essence and its core. Because if you look at it, the famous or infamous, depending on whichever perspective you look at it, the Georgia's voting laws, they, from what the media drummed it up to be, the mainstream media, it appeared as though it was, quote-unquote, new Jim Crow laws. However, if you look at the fine print of those laws, I, I unfortunately don't have it here, but in a future episode I could go and read the fine print for you guys. It had nothing to do necessarily with race at all. It just simply restricted political activists from influencing voters at polling stations to be able to, uh, f- to influence one's vote. So, for example, you can't have a political activist that is wearing a candidate's swag or merchandise show up to you at a poll station offering you food or water because that could possibly influence or subconsciously or consciously the way that you vote. So the media famously said that, oh no, you can't give water now within polling station. No, that's not true. The political activist can't give you any water or food within a certain distance of the polling station, which... I think the distance is still an arbitrary number that makes no sense, but that's beside the point, that they cannot give you it due to the fact that it would possibly influence your ability to vote. So that was a side tangent. I'm going to go talk about these some two centrist senators that are key in the negotiation over infrastructure spending really quick, and then that will be it. So Senator Joe Manchin said Sunday that he wants to focus on the conventional aspect of infrastructure like highways and bridges that the spending should be split from broader items in President Biden's proposal, such as the $400 million, not million, billion to help care for aging and those with disabilities. Quote, I do think they should be separate because if you start putting so much into one bill, which we call an omnibus bill, it makes it very, very difficult for the public to understand, Mr. Manchin said on CNN. Republican Senator Shelley Moore also from West Virginia, said she had received positive feedback from the White House after she helped craft a $568 billion infrastructure proposal, which was cast as a starting point for bipartisan negotiation. Quote, this is an active conversation, and I think that it's a good beginning, she said on CNN of the plan, which doesn't provide specifics on how to fund the investments, and some Democrats say it's, too, it's far too limited. Quote, that's a good start. Despite flickers of bipartisanship, the parties remain far apart on infrastructure and other issues on President Biden's near as President Biden nears his 100th day in office and seeks to press agenda, including a next wave of spending on anti-poverty and education programs he wants to be paid for by higher tax on the wealthy. A personal familiarity with the plan said Sunday it will almost cost $1.8 trillion, which could fuel Republican criticism about spending by Democrats. On Wednesday, President Biden will urge Congress to get behind his infrastructure plan while calling for the passage of legislation to address police misconduct. He's also expected to outline his next major spending plan, more than $1 trillion on anti-poverty and education programs that will be paid for through higher taxes on the wealthy that was drawn early that would draw early Republican opposition. Mr. And then let's get into the little aspect of how this could influence the president's perception. So Mr. Biden gets high marks on his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economy while his overall rating is 53%, according to real clear politics average of polls. That is above what 
former President Donald Trump received during his first days, 100 days in office, but below what fellow Democrat Barack Obama enjoyed at the same time in his first term. And I'm going to go on a quick tangent here. The idea of polling is an interesting one because in a conventional manner, you'd expect a poll to represent the majority of the country. And what you see is, though, is that these polls that are taken by various organizations, they're actually very small, and they're in very specific locations. And depending on what narrative that that organization would like to promulgate, they will poll respectively to demographic, socioeconomic standing, and place of residence. And so typically these polls approximately have a thousand participants and they usually are skewed to older or younger individuals depending on the organization who is conducting the poll. This is because of the results that they would like to accomplish and how they would like to accomplish them. So as Mr. as President Biden gets his high marks on his COVID-19 handling, that's an interesting statement because if you look at the statistics of the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, during the day of Joe Biden's inauguration, there were approximately 1.2 million vaccines being conducted per day. Now, President Trump, I'm going, and this is purely the math and statistics that is behind it. President Trump, through Operation Warp Speed, developed a vaccine in less than a year from, com from completely nothing to a fully functioning FDA-approved vaccine through private enterprise. And that's the most important part is he allowed private en enterprise and that process to work itself out and to create these vaccines in under a year, and that is something that we have never seen. The polio vaccine, for example, took almost, oh goodness, 30 times longer, quite possibly even longer than that, to develop and to distribute to the public. So if, it, if you really look at it, it was really a scientific miracle that this would happen in the time. And from, not only from that, but he also was able to get the vaccine distribution up to about 1.2 million per day. Now, when Joe Biden entered office, we could see that the rate at which the increase in vaccinations per day remained very arithmetic, which is not something you'd expect, actually, because as vaccines grow, you'd expect the supply to increase as well as manufacturing plants begin to pump them out faster. And so what President Biden did was he got on the bandwagon, essentially. And I know that that may sound like a very partisan statement, but go and look up the statistics, search the search up Trump versus Biden vaccine handling. And you'll get some statistics. Um, make sure you use valid ones. Don't use very partisan ones, but usually the nonprofit ones that I would consider. Those are the best ones. But you have to realize that how a vaccine, not a vaccine, how a virus spreads in the population. It's very, it has a bell curve to it. That's, that's the apparent size of it. And President Trump was 
I don't know want to say unfortunate, but he had the COVID-19 vaccine, or not vaccine, the COVID-19 pandemic occur later in his presidency when he was up for re-election while President Biden is on the tail ends of it. So it's going to appear as cases drop and as fatalities drop, it's going to appear, the public perception is going to appear to whoever holds the mantle of the executive office and associate that with all the work done by that one individual. So in terms of Biden, President Biden, he's sitting very well, while President Trump is not. So that's why the poll is, I would say, is getting high marks. And so to wrap up, he says, Mr. Mr. Manchin or Senator Manchin is one of the most closely watched members of the Senate, giving that the chamber has a 50-50 split between Republicans and Democrats the Democratic caucuses, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the deciding vote in a case of a tie. He has resisted calls in his party to change Senate filibuster rules requiring a 60-vote threshold to pass major legislation, and is lukewarm about raising corporate taxes to pay for infrastructures. Alrighty, so that is all I have available for you guys today. This is Eli Kelson with the Teenager's Guide to Politics.